Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to The Parting Shot, your dose of everything pop culture. I'm H. Allen Scott. So if you didn't know, it's awards season. And honestly, how could you not know? It seems like every week there's a new award show happening. The Golden Globes, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the People's Choice Awards, which, in my opinion, are always the most fun because they're fully unhinged. Although, I will say, last week's BAFTAs were pretty unhinged, too. Particularly Ariana DeBose's performance. It was a wrap of, I mean, I just... Okay, just listen to this. He's in the room, supporting and leading. All here, I presume. Hong Chao, Dolly D, Carrie and Carrie with the C. Jay Mama, I'm so fond. And a girl, you were great and blonde. Danielle D, you broke my heart. Michelle, I've loved you from the start. Angela Bassett did the thing. Viola Davis, my woman king. Blanche Kate, you're a genius. And Jamie Lee, you are all of us. I mean, this is why I love award shows. For these cringe moments. I mean, I love Ariana DeBose, but <laughs> this was a moment. But it all started with one award show way back in the day in the 1920s. The Academy Awards. Now, the very first Academy Awards I watched was the 1993 Oscars. I was this little kid who had never seen any of the movies even nominated that year, but I was obsessed with the pageantry of it all. There was the host, Billy Crystal, who was really funny, and then there was Tom Hanks's win for Philadelphia, which I didn't know anything about, but the film's about a man fighting for dignity after being fired from his job for having AIDS, and he gave this emotional speech that just hit me in a way that I can't even explain to this day. I would not be standing here if it weren't for two very important men in my life, So, two that I haven't spoken with in a while, but I had the pleasure of just the other evening, Mr. Raleigh Farnsworth, who was my high school drama teacher, who taught me that act well the part, there all the glory lies. And one of my classmates under Mr. Farnsworth, Mr. John Gilkerson. I mention their names because they are two of the finest gay Americans, two wonderful men, that I had the good fortune to be associated with, to fall under their inspiration at such a young age. I wish my babies could have the same sort of teacher, the same sort of friends. And there lies my dilemma here tonight. I know that my work in this case is magnified by the fact that the streets of heaven are too crowded with angels. We know their names. They number a thousand for each one of the red ribbons that we wear here tonight. They finally rest in the warm embrace of the gracious creator of us all, a healing embrace that cools their fevers, that clears their skin, and allows their eyes to see the simple, self-evident, common-sense truth that is made manifest by the benevolent creator of us all and was written down on paper by wise men, tolerant men, in the city of Philadelphia 200 years ago. God bless you all. God have mercy on us all, and God bless America. Last year, I was able to tell Tom Hanks how much this moment meant to me. I don't know if you could do the same thing now. I think 2022 would require a different type of authenticity. But for uh, but for 1994, 
it it might have been some aspect of uh, the the only way in order to to put it forward. And that if you were a little kid, and if you were gay, you I'm going to assume that you knew you were gay, right? Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. That in any way, if it could have empowered anybody, including you, to say, like, when I can, I will be myself and I will be proud of myself and um, I will be able to walk like everybody else and talk and gather and love who I want to love. Well, isn't that a little bit of the power of the cinema at its absolute best, but only at its absolute best? But from that moment, I was obsessed not only with everything Tom Hanks, but also with the Academy Awards. I watched every single year and I dived into the award show's history, which, as you'll learn today, says more about Hollywood and the film industry than it does about awards and what is deemed the quote-unquote best of the year. For years, I wanted one book that truly told the story of the Oscars, how it started, why it started, and its impact along the way. And finally, a book like that exists. Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold, sweat, and tears. Today I'll be chatting with the book's author, Michael Schulman. I can't even begin to tell you how great this book is. If you have a film lover in your life, or maybe you are a film lover, then you need to get this book. It is so good. It's the Bible of the Oscars. So go on, grab a snack, because I'll be right back with Michael Schulman. And while you're listening, consider leaving a little rating and review of the podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast. It would really help the show. I'd also like to hear your reactions. I'm H. Allen Scott on everything. And stick around at the end of this podcast to find out whom I'll be speaking with next week. It's actually a fantastic conversation. You're going to love it. But right now, let's get to Michael Schulman. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. So we've known each other for a while, and but I don't think we've ever, I mean, we bonded over movies and like I, we've talked when we first met, I think we literally just talked about movies. Uh, so I, we know we're movie people, but I, for some reason, didn't know you were as big of an Oscar sort of buff as I am, I was about to say freak, but I didn't want to like offend you. But I am definitely an Oscar freak. How about a f- aficionado, aficionado. So, I mean, Come on, yeah, you write for the New Yorker, so of course you have to use aficionado. <laughs> I'm going to say freak. And, and fair enough. I so when you, when the book, when news of the book, when I saw on your Instagram that the book was coming out, I freaked out. I was so excited. I it just it's such it's like it's the Bible of the Oscars. Like what. What made you do this and how hard was it? I'll answer the second question first, which is that it was very hard. It took me four years um, in partly because I have 
a day job at the New Yorker that keeps me very busy. And partly because it's just like a big idea. It's like yeah. it covers a lot of history and I had to learn a lot about each sort of historical era. But I'll tell you why I decided to write the book. So in 2016, 2017, I wrote uh, a piece for the New Yorker about the Academy kind of navigating the aftermath of Oscar so white and mm -hmm. all the controversy over the diversification initiative that they did and demoting some people, some of the old timers. Um, I just thought it was a really interesting kind of flashpoint in Hollywood. And so I went out there and I spent a lot of time with, uh, Cheryl Bone Isaacs, who was the first black president of the Academy. And mm -hmm. she was getting all of this, blowback from you know people in the academy who thought this or that as well as a lot of praise yeah um and so i i just was, was really immersed in like the history of the academy and the history of the oscars i i learned a lot i was i got really fascinated and then that piece came out and that year i went out to the academy wars to cover them in person for the first time and wow. i was so wide-eyed you know i'm like i've watched the oscars since i was 11 yeah. and was suddenly there i mean i wasn't quite there i was in the press room yes. i was in the sitting in the theater you were that was more than closer than most people <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i mean i walked on through the red carpet yeah. in that mall if they have the oscars in now yeah Anyway, that was the year of the envelope mix-up with yeah. Moonlight and La La Land. Yeah. So I had just written this piece about, you know, the Academy having this racial reckoning. And then it all ended in this gigantic kind of surprise Hollywood twist ending. And I just saw the whole year of that whole year of Academy history as like this epic tale mm -hmm. um, of kind of cultural shift. And of course, this was happening the same year as Trump getting elected. So I, it felt like... It was this big story about culture in America, like a, the culture war in America mm -hmm. on some bigger level. And that's where I came up with the idea for Oscar Wars, which is it, it doesn't cover every single year. Yeah. Like who won, who lost every, you know, there are books that are like that, that tell you kind of which records were set, what jokes were told at the mm -hmm. ceremony. Da, 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 da. Um, I wanted to write a book that was maybe just a dozen chapters and each chapter would go really deep on one year or even one category or one kind of conflict that told you something about the era, something about how culture was changing. And you can see, you can use the Oscars as kind of a prism to understand yes. the history of Hollywood. Yes. That's so, it's so interesting because I remember as a kid, I used to have Tom O'Neill used to publish yearly, these books about the Oscars that had basically all the mm -hmm. awards and a small write up on it and stuff. And I, that's when I I became obsessive as a kid reading those books. But I wanted to know more about the years and the drama of the years and sort of the I mean, because it does. There are anyone who is a big Oscar sort of aficionado knows that there are sort of like. See, you're using I'm aficionado using it now. now. I mean, it's catching on. I mean, hey, I'm here. Uh, there are certain sort of pillar years that stand out as as turning points, I think, for both culture film and the Academy Awards. And I mean, I mm -hmm. think Moonlight and uh, La La Land was definitely one of those years that people just in memory, they remember that year. I do have to ask you about three different years because they stand out sure. to me and I want your opinion on them. So, and you write about it in the book, 1939, which the best picture race and 1939 in general as a year for mm -hmm. film with Gone with the Wind, with The Wizard of Oz. I mean, so many different films. Wasn't also Mr. Smith Goes Washington that year? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so many iconic films come from that year. What is it about that year that sort of 
do you think changed movies? I mean, just uh, those were incredible movies. I mean, uh, uh, that's always talked about as the sort of watershed year or the Anus, Anus, Mirabilis, Anus Mirabilis of Hollywood. You're the big word person, not me. I took took Latin (laughs) in high school, but it's failing me now. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, gone, as you said, gone with the wind, wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I mean, just imagine having three movies like that in contention for the Oscars all at once. So I actually didn't write about that. I didn't choose that year as one of my years Mm -hmm. of the book because it's a fabulous year for movies, yeah. but in a way, a kind of boring year for the Oscars because it was gone with the wind, just like swept everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although I do write about it in the chapter on the sort of three groundbreaking uh, black actors who won in their categories. Yes. So Hattie McDaniel won um, best uh, supporting actress for playing Mammy. Yeah. And she was the first black Oscar nominee recipient. She was even the first black Oscar guest at the ceremony wow you know who is first person there who wasn't you know serving uh dinner or something um but in terms of like the the best picture race that one didn't seem as juicy to me because it was such a foregone conclusion that gone with the wind was the movie of the year although there was a a a nice tidbit of how they used to do a lot more joke oscars back in the day yeah um and they used to give like juvenile awards so i think Mm -hmm. um that might've been the year that Judy Garland got a juvenile award, but there are all these funny stories from the thirties where like for, for uh, Snow White and the seven dwarfs, they gave Walt Disney like a big Oscar and then seven little dwarf yeah. Oscars. Yeah. And like Edgar Bergen, who was the ventriloquist with Charlie McCarthy got like a wooden Oscar that was, you know, had a movable <laughs> mouth. So yeah. there used to be a lot more cuteness at the Oscars. And, um, and I, so I think Judy Garland got, um, her juvenile award maybe that year yeah i think so but what's so interesting about what when in reading the book 1939 was sort of like setting the stage for a lot of really pivotal years to follow especially 1941 with citizen kane and then you had and it led to olivia de Havilland and joan and, and joan fontaine their sort of rivalry as sisters and it's sort of that's what was so great about the book i think is that you have these years that everyone knows but then it you you kind of use it to spin off into these other years that are Probably not as remembered as 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 sort of ac- accurately, I guess, but are for an Oscar buff like I mean, this is the information I want to know, like Olivia de Havilland being upset about her loss in 1939 and that somehow playing a role in this feud and then her eventually yes, winning yes. and all of it is fascinating. Right. So, yeah. So when I was looking at that, that sort of general history, that general period and trying to pick which year do I choose to go deep, deep, deep into mm-hmm. The 1939 movie year, the Gone with the Wind year, you know, didn't seem as juicy to me as an Oscar story. But the 1942 Oscars, meaning the movies of 1941, had so much going on. It was the year that Citizen Kane shockingly lost Mm -hmm. after having all of this scandal surrounding it. It was the it was two and a half months after Pearl Harbor. And there's this sort of subplot about Betty Davis being the president of the Academy and then quitting in a blaze of glory and the Oscars were canceled. Then they were uncanceled all because of Pearl Harbor and the America entering the war. And then thirdly, um, and most homosexually, uh, <laughs> these two actresses, uh, th- these two sisters who hated each other, Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine, were nominated against each other for Best Actress and each had lost before. Yeah. And they were kind of in a race yeah. for who was going to win an Oscar first. So Olivia had lost for 
um, Gone with the Wind to Hattie mm-hmm. McDaniel, her co-star. Joan Fontaine had lost for Rebecca, the Hitchcock film the year before. One of my favorites. And suddenly they were both, they both had another shot and yeah. like, which one's going to, which one's going to get it. Yeah. And they were nominated also against Betty Davis, who had just <laughs> abdicated her seat at the Academy. Drama. I mean, that is just so much freaking drama for one year. It's so good. And it also. And made- it puts like Andrea Riseborough in. It's, perspective it's like can you imagine if we had two feuding sisters and the oscars were canceled this year and then uncanceled and the you know like america was going to war and there was like this brilliant movie that was like causing unending scandal with like a press lord like i mean it's, it's nothing just, compared a lot. to it it's nothing compared to it there is speaking of betty davis and well the homosexual obsession with certain categories. Cause I feel like that's a whole other conversation we need to have about why homosexuals are obsessed with the Oscars. But, um, the 1950 best actress race, this one to me is my favorite. This is the era. This is the moment that I, when people talk to me about the Oscars, like I talk mm-hmm. about this race and primarily the race between Judy holiday, Betty Davis and Gloria Swanson, Gloria Swanson for sunset Boulevard, Betty Davis mm-hmm. for all about Eve. And then of course, Judy holiday for, um, for born yesterday. And how iconic is this race? And how does somebody like Holiday win against Gloria Swanson, who the, the, the mother of Hollywood in a way, and Betty Davis, the evil stepsister of Hollywood? Like, how? How does that happen? <laughs> I mean, this was a chapter that I had in mind from the very beginning. Of course you When did. I was first I'm, conceiving the book, friends. I was like, I was like, the, you know, this best actress race was so stacked mm-hmm. that I just wanted to live in it mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. find out everything about how these women experienced this year in their lives and, and Oscar night and sort of what it meant for all of them. And, you know, I mean, all about Eve is really my favorite yes. pre 1960 movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, all these three women also in their category was Ann Baxter as yeah. Eve. Yeah. So it's like there was that situation going on. So I really knew from the start that that would be a really juicy, full chapter about sort of women in uh, Golden Age Hollywood and these three specific women who had these absolutely iconic characters all the same year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... The level of obsession that I I remember when I was a kid, I, I didn't know anything about it. And then I remember watching All About Eve and my mom mentioning something about her grandmother or mother maybe being angry that Betty Davis lost in 19 and how viscerally like angry she was at Judy Holiday to the point where I remember there was something with bells or ringing came on TV or something. And my my grandmother wouldn't like she refused to watch it because she was still angry at judy holiday for stealing betty davis's oscar oh my gosh that's how insane my family is and that your grandmother sounds amazing yeah oh she was she was i mean she was you know she was a character but that year i mean it's just and these pillar years are so indicative for me the other one comes and i think it i don't know if it's necessarily because it was the first year i ever watched the academy awards or i've also heard from film people that it is like also one of the most iconic years 1993, particularly Best Picture, and just for film in general in 93 was Schindler's List and then Jurassic mm-hmm. Park, but then so many other films that came to Philadelphia that came out that year that it just became one of those years of like 
the, the cinema that year was just was iconic. Is there is there something about 1993 that stands out or is it just because it was my first year watching? Well, you know how um, Lorne Michaels always says that people always tell him the best era of Saturday Night Live was whenever they first started watching the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's similar with the Oscars because I remember those early 90s years as just the pinnacle of Oscars. And of course, that's when I started watching them. Yeah. And so I remember the Billy Crystal medleys that would start the show. The cough drop, I rem- dancing in the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember these jokes about movies that I hadn't even seen. Like, I remember him coming on in the Hannibal Lecter mask. Not that I had any clue what Silence of the Lambs even was. Yeah. But I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And then, um, well, I mean, Schindler's li- Yeah, I remember that. I mean, I remember, um, of course, Tom Hanks thanking his gay theater teacher or whatever yeah. for Philadelphia, which then became the premise of the movie In and Out. One of my so favorites. That, that Oscar mo- that Oscar year inspired a whole other movie. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, that it, that is quite a year. But so is like, I, I don't know. I mean. Yeah, what other years stand out to you? Pulp. I mean, right after that was Pulp Fiction versus yeah. Forrest Gump, which is yeah. like such a crazy showdown and Shawshank Redemption that year too. I mean, that year Mm -hmm. had iconic best picture nominees. Yeah. Incredible. Do any other years stand out to you that like that you maybe from the book that you highlighted that are important? Well, one that was really, really, really fun to write about was the 1989 quote unquote worst Oscars ever. (laughs) Uh, The year that um, opened with this very, very long opening number uh, featuring Rob Lowe, singing proud mary with a woman dressed as snow white i mean this just went down in like camp history as a complete flaming fiasco and it's interesting because it always comes up as a you know this disaster this tacky campy embarrassment but the closer i looked at it the more it seemed like a tragedy to me because Mm. it's really a chapter all about this guy alan carr who was he was the best known as the producer of Grease, although he also produced uh, La Caja Faux on Broadway. Mm-hmm. He produced Can't Stop the Music, the Village People movie, which I urge everyone to see. <laughs> um, and he had waited his whole life and dreamt of producing the Oscars. And he finally got a chance in 89 and put on this opening number that was just so long and so crazy and so schlocky and insane. Yeah. And... You know, there was a kind of there was a kind of snowball effect where he got blamed for all of the backlash to it. Yeah. You know, most we don't the public doesn't usually know who produces the Oscars. Like, do you know who produced the Oscars last year? No, I don't No, Most people don't pay attention to that. But Alan Carr was this showman and he wanted his name in lights and he put his name every single place he could. Mm. Um, So when that opening number got terrible reviews, everyone associated with him and then because it got terrible reviews disney threatened to sue the academy for unlicensed use of snow white so that caused even more backlash for him and then because all of that was happening in the press this group of academy of like hollywood elders like gregory peck and uh blake edwards and julie andrews all wrote this open letter about what an embarrassment the show was (laughs) and so there was more and more and more and it just kept piling on Alan Carr, who um, was just this 
a flaming gay man in a caftan and you know (laughs) there was an undercurrent maybe of of homophobia to it of like look at this this guy is so over the top so flamboyant that's the kind of words that the kind of words that people use at the time um but he had just he had sort of smeared his ego all over this this oscar year and when it when it turned out to be a disaster it basically ruined his career and ruined his life wow wow fascinating really fascinating stuff do you what do you think it is about the oscars that fascinates us still because i mean it's it's one of the oldest award shows well um i mean i hope it's still fascinating to people because yeah. you know the ratings have been on a bit of a slide but um yeah. no i think that we love um competition games yeah it's also something that you know, it's essentially like a game. It's a, it's a ritual. It's a game. It's something we all participate in. It invites people to get into a conversation. Mm-hmm. I think the Oscars are participatory because they give us a reason to argue over what should, what we think should win, who we think should win, who we think is better than others. You know, it sort of gives everybody a reason to express our own taste and argue about movies and yeah. debate which was the best thing and talk about which was our favorite thing. So it involves everyone. And I think that's why it still has so much robust conversation around it. Yeah. There's, I wanted to go back to, you were talking about how the inspiration for the book came from the year sort of in the midst of Oscar. So white and the whole moonlight, la la land scandal and everything that happened that year. And how do you think, because I mean, there are so many different examples of, the Oscars basically showing their very privileged culture in terms of the nominees and the winners over Mm -hmm. the years. And they have made a concerted effort in the past years to change the voting system and to change it so that it can be more inclusive to films that might not get the exposure that past nominees have. How do you think the Academy has changed in terms of diversity over the past few years? And do you think they're on the road to being more inclusive? I think they've taken tremendous efforts. I mean, what they, the thing is the, the Academy can't control everything. They can't control who people vote for or who people nominate. They can only do so much, but starting that year um, with the Oscars so white blowing up, they really put the pedal to the metal in terms of inviting people, way more people into the Academy, um, inviting more diverse people of all sorts of the meaning of the word like you know racially diverse gender age uh there are way more international people in the academy now so they really made efforts and then more recently they um announced these uh guidelines for eligibility anything that wants to be eligible for best picture has to have you know a certain level of diversity in front of or behind of the camp uh, behind the camera Mm um so They've done all that thing, and I think it's really commendable. And if you go to the Academy Museum, which just opened recently, incredible museum. It was really, uh, it really tells a story of marginalized, undersung people from movie history. It's not just the things we all know. It's you know, really trying to uh, kind of level the playing field for history. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting writing this book about Oscar history, and then seeing the Academy's version of its history mm. at the museum. However, so that's all to say they've done quite a lot. However, they can't control everything. And, mm. you know, we see this year with Andrea Riseborough. Yeah. They can have all of the sort of guidelines for campaigning that they want. But if a bunch of, you know, A-list 
stars decide on nominating weekend to have a social media push yeah. that gets people's attention, you know, they, they that's just going to happen organically. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if, you know, if people, if every, every year tells us kind of, kind of different story about, mm-hmm. you know, equality in, in Hollywood and representation, you know, this year, for instance, is an incredible year for um, Asian actors yeah. and, and filmmakers but a terrible year for, you know, female directors yeah. and black women um, in the best actress category. So, you know, you, I, you know, I don't know if it's ever going to be like a perfect snapshot of, of course, you know, the population. But I don't think I think the Academy has done a lot of what it can to sort yeah. of just to make sure that the voting, the, 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 the membership body that's doing the voting is more rounded. Well, and that's something I'm glad you touched on the campaigning part, because that is something I remember when Oscar so white happened and I thought it was very necessary to have the conversation because it was a very needed conversation. But also I think something lacking from the conversation was the larger sort of studio infrastructure that pushes these campaigns on films and pushes the films that they choose to push for Academy attention. And while there is only so much that the Oscars can do, it's also like, the studio system could do a lot more in terms of the films mm-hmm. they are pushing and the films they are campaigning for. And and I remember when, when you bring up Andrea Riseborough, who got the surprise Best Actress nomination, and there was that famous tweet that people keep citing from Francis. Um, not oh, Fisher. Fisher, yeah. thank you, who talked about how, you know, it's a, it's a lock that Daniel Deadweiler and Viola Davis will get nominated, right. so you might as well support Andrea Riseborough. And, of course, it ended up that neither of them getting nominated, and they were in two commercially successful, critically acclaimed, you know, films from from this past year, seen as very likely nominees. And it but was the studio behind those films? Was the studio system campaigning for those films in a way that they were campaigning with the the star power that Andrea Riseborough had? So it is an interesting conversation. And I wanted to know, like the Andrea Riseborough of it all. Do you think that that campaign from I hate to say it, but mostly white mega stars, mega female stars who pushed this nomination. Do you think that that will change the Academy will change how they allow campaigning to happen? Possibly, you know, one of the chapters, actually the longest one, because it's such a complicated story is about the 1999 race between saving private Ryan and Shakespeare in love. And it's really a story about Harvey Weinstein and how, in the 90s, Harvey Weinstein at Miramax revolutionized Oscar campaigning. He really saw himself as the underdog, whether you believe that or not, um, because he was this indie company in New York City. He wasn't one of the big studios, although Miramax was eventually owned by Disney. But still, he really felt, OK, I need to do whatever I can to get attention for these little art house movies that I'm doing. And part of that is to just you know, shower the trade magazines with ads for, for the Oscars and throw all the parties I can and get these, you know, get Gwyneth Paltrow to every single place I can get her. Um, And it was, you know, so much spending and so much hoopla. And that kind of became the playbook for a long time. Which, and, and as, as he did stuff like that, and as other people sort of pushed the ball and push the envelope in reaction to him to keep up with him, like other studios, mm-hmm. it all ballooned and the Academy had to 
scramble to keep up by putting new rules in place like oh you did this well uh, next year that's no longer allowed you know um and it was this kind of catch up for 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 many years and i think something similar will probably happen with andrea risebo because what's interesting about it is that this sort of social media campaign I, people have called it grassroots but i, I feel like yeah. when you have that level of you know if you have like kate blanchett and uh, gwyneth kate, paltrow yeah, kate, kate, <laughs> kate winslet you know and jennifer aniston it's not really grassroots yeah in the spirit of the word but it did sort of short circuit that old Weinstein playbook of spending a lot of money. And so I think what will happen, and the Academy has basically said this, is that they're going to look at their rules and they're probably going to come up with guidelines for social media. Yeah. Because everything that these actresses and actors did on her behalf on social media is basically what campaign strategists do, you know, in their offices behind closed doors as they talk about, oh, so-and-so is a lock, but we can get in this slot, that slot. You know, there's nothing, they just did it on social media, you know? So yeah. I, I I think the rules are always evolving, but this kind of showed that the rules are very flimsy and you can basically short circuit them if you come up with a way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, my last question for you is, and you mentioned the ratings and, you know, the ratings for the awards, show, the telecast for the awards show, has gone dramatically down. Um, I don't know if there had any impact last year on the whole Will Smith drama. If that, if people tuned in after they heard on social media of people of the, of the slap, but ratings have been universally going down year after year after year. Do you think, let's say 20 years from now, when Gwyneth Paltrow is campaigning for an Oscar for someone who's much younger, do you think that the Oscars will still hold the relevancy that they hold today? And do you think they're even still relevant in terms of recognizing modern cinema? It's really hard to say. I mean, last year, actually, the ratings went up a bit. You know, the, the lowest point was the pandemic Oscars, the one at the train station. Yeah. Just because I think people were not, they were just not in the mind to like think about movies. Yeah. All these big movies had not been, had been held from release because of the pandemic. So there were a lot of little movies that year. So, um, I don't know, you know, I think that the, the question of relevance for the Oscars, it's kind of a bigger question than the Oscars. I think it's really about movies and the role that movies play in our culture. I mean, right now, Hollywood is, a, it's a really weird industry where you have these gigantic movies like the avatars and Marvel movies, Top Gun, these big franchises that are the only thing that people really go out to cinema for everything else is streaming essentially, you know, and even these movies this year, like the Fablemans and Tar, like these big Oscar movies haven't done that well at the box office. And they're kind of in this, the streaming like netherworld right now. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of hard to know who's even paying attention to them. And those movies in the middle, like the sort of mid budget movies, studio movies, like adult dramas that have always held the Oscars together with popular culture, those have kind of disappeared. Like, I don't know, like Kramer versus Kramer, yeah. for instance, like that movie was both the biggest domestic box office hit of the year and the best picture winner. Isn't that wild and to consider that would never drama about divorce starring two, you know, starring Dustin Hoffman and a, a not very well-known Meryl street. Mm. And this was like a huge, centerpiece of american culture that kind of doesn't exist anymore it's, it's sort of migrated to television but they're also even on television like everyone's a little more fragmented you don't have the entire country watching the same tv show anymore in the way that they did 
you know, 20, 30 years ago. And that holds to the Oscars too. Like it's hard to get that many people in the country, much less the world to all watch the same thing. You know, every mm-hmm. culture has fragmented in such a big way. And so I think that, you know, when people ask about how should they change the ceremony to appeal to more people? Like, I just don't that you can do whatever to the ceremony. I don't think that will make such a difference. I think they should yeah. just make the ceremony what they want it to be. Um, because really the thing that's shifting is the role of, movies in our lives Mm. in general and it's really hard to see where that's going yeah yeah that's so true so true i can't tell you enough how much i enjoy the book and how much i enjoy your writing in general and i encourage everyone to go get it and i who do you want to win for best picture this year who are you pushing for um i have to gosh my my prediction is everything everywhere all at once um my personal favorites this year were Tar and The Triangle of Sadness. I, I don't think there's a way in hell that either will win. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe Tar. I, Tar is too sort of cold. It's like, yeah. you know, it, usually movies with a bit more heart win. Um, but those were my personal favorites this year. Yeah, I can see everything everywhere winning. And I that that's, is my favorite of the year. Just it just. I'm a Michelle Yeoh stan, and I want her to win everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. Seriously, if you're obsessed with the Oscars, go get Oscar Wars. It's a fantastic book. You will not be disappointed. And thanks for listening to Newsweek's Parting Shot. If you went and rated this, I wouldn't be mad. You know, if you liked what you heard, I would not be mad if you gave a little rating and a review. For the latest news and podcasts, head to Newsweek.com and follow Newsweek on all the social platforms. And while you're at Newsweek.com, go on and subscribe to Newsweek's For the Culture newsletter. It comes from me twice a week. It's so fun. On the next episode, I'll be chatting with Eugene Levy about his new travel show, The Reluctant Traveler, on Apple TV+. Now, I'm not a big fan of traveling, so it was a lot of fun to talk with someone who has sort of the same outlook on traveling as I do. It's Such a funny chat, as you can expect from someone like Eugene Levy. And I just, you know, there aren't many people that I can complain about traveling to. So I'm glad I just had that 30 minutes with Eugene. Until then, watch something fun and have a great day. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The Parting Shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.